0: So, uh, a couple of months ago, we spent two weeks looking at the first chapter of the book of Joshua. Well, this Sunday morning and next, we're going to continue this uh, intermittent series. Just to give you a backdrop to the passage we'll be considering this morning, uh, there are three things that we could highlight from the first chapter that we looked at previously, the first thing we saw was how the children of Israel were camped on the east bank of the river Jordan, poised to cross over the river into the land of the Canaanites. Moses, you remember, uh, who had led the children out of Israel, he was dead. But God had appointed another leader in his place. God had been preparing Joshua over many years beforehand, to take over the role that he now had to do. His role was to lead the children of Israel into the Promised Land. And you may remember that we saw that Joshua's name in Hebrew means the Lord is salvation. And so Joshua points us to another having the same title, even the Lord Jesus Christ himself. For it is the Lord Jesus who is our Lord and our Saviour, and it is the Lord Jesus who leads us as members of his church. The second thing we saw was that the entry of the children of Israel into the promised land was the fulfilment of a promise that God had made to Abraham many centuries before. Back in Genesis chapter 15, God had foretold the captivity of the Israelites in Egypt. But along with this somber news of what would befall Abraham's descendants, there was also a wonderful promise of what would follow. For God promised that after 400 years, he would judge his people's captors. And he would bring the people out of the land of Egypt, bring them out with great riches. Not only that, but at the same time, God promised Abraham that his descendants would then inherit the land in which Abraham was just then a pilgrim. Abraham, you remember, was just a sojourner in the land, but God was going to give it to Abraham's descendants as a land in which they could dwell securely, a land which they could call home. So this is the promised land that the Israelites have in front of them as they camp in the opening chapter of this book. And when we consider this together, we saw Israel's Canaan then was just the latest chapter in a great plan of God. This chapter was going to be different, but it was still part of this grand scheme to fulfill the promise that he'd made to Abraham many years before. And then we also saw that while God had promised the land to the children of Israel, the years ahead were going to be tough and hard. It was going to be full of long marches and battles. In chapter 1, verse 9, God promised Joshua... That he would be with him wherever he went. But the following verses make plain to the people that they were required to engage with the task as they took possession of the land. They were pre- to prepare their provisions and they were exhorted to support one another as they faced the challenge that lay. And so too we saw was the Christian life. God works out his great plan of salvation in our lives. It's a plan which he determined before creation. But if we're Christians today, we're led by our saviour, the Lord Jesus, but we still need to engage in the battle against sin and Satan every day, relying on the provision that the Lord graciously gives us which grace, which is sufficient for every day. So we left Joshua telling his officers in uh, verse 11 of chapter one, "Prepare your provisions for within three days you're to go over, you are to pass over this Jordan, to go in and take possession of the land which the Lord is giving to you to possess.." And so this morning, in our reading, we read that while these preparations were taking place, Joshua sends two spies across the river to Jericho. He sends them to this fortified city, a city of this fierce, powerful, but wicked people, the Canaanites. We'll take a few minutes this morning to consider the story of these three spies, and in particular, the woman Rahab, whom they met. We'll consider it under three headings. Rahab's faith, Rahab's choice, and then lastly, Rahab's hope. Rahab's faith, Rahab's choice, and then Rahab's hope. If you look at verse 1, we read, Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying... Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. Now at first sight, that might appear a rather innocuous statement. But to understand the significance of this verse, we need to dig a little bit further and try to understand Rahab a little bit better. And the best place to go to understand Rahab is to jump on to verse 9 and the next couple of verses after that, for that's the discourse that Rahab has with the spies on the roof of her house. By Rahab's own confession there in verse 10, she had heard along with the rest of the inhabitants of Jericho what God had already done for the children of Israel. In verse 10, she says, We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan. She had heard. They had heard. The people of Jericho had heard. Now, we don't know precisely how they heard these things, um, there was no Facebook then. Moses didn't have his Instagram account and uh, BBC News wasn't telling us what was happening around the world. But heard they had. They had heard all that had happened a long way away in Egypt. Perhaps uh, news had come through the trading caravans. They'd heard how Israel had been brought out of Egypt And they'd heard how they'd been brought through the wilderness and they'd heard how the kings Sihon and Og had been defeated. And indeed not just defeated because uh, the words here we're told is that they were devoted to destruction. Not only that, but in verse 11, (coughs) Rahab tells us a little more. We find that Rahab, like the rest of the inhabitants of Jericho, realize the significance of what they'd heard. We're told that uh, the inhabitants of Jericho, their hearts had melted, their courage had disappeared and uh, disappeared when they realized what they were up against. They weren't just up against the Israelite army, but they were up against the Lord God Almighty. And it is a remarkable admission that Rahab made. Here. She tells us that the people of Jericho realized that the Lord of the Israelites was not like their local deities and idols. Rahab tells us that the people in Jericho realized that they were dealing with the God in heaven above and on earth beneath. And I say that's remarkable. Because although the people of Jericho recognize who they are dealing with, they still seek to shut him out of their lives. They bar the city gate at night. They retreat into their fortified walls. Although they've heard the testimony of how God graciously saved his people from the Egyptians, they resolve to have nothing to do with him and they set their hearts against him although they have heard how the kings on the other side of the Jordan had been powerless and have been utterly defeated they were determined to resist God's will and assert themselves against him but the second thing we learn from Rahab, about Rahab from these verses verses 9 onwards is that Rahab does not harden her heart in this way she also heard the news of what the lord had done in egypt but she responded in a very different way look at uh, look at the uh, at verse 12 uh, at the end of verse 12 give me a sure sign and then into 13 that you will save alive my father and my mother my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Why does Rahab say that? Well, we need to appreciate that the book of Joshua has a sombre side to it. It has a serious side to it. For if God was going to bring the Israelites into the promised land to inherit it, he was also going to exercise judgment on those who are, were currently living in it. So you see, in blessing his chosen people, the Lord was also going to destroy Jericho and all who were in it. Now, the wrath of God is an uncomfortable truth, which we all struggle with at some time or other in our Christian lives. And we struggle because we have a limited view of God Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, now we see through a glass darkly. The effects of our sin smudges that glass. We we only see an outline of God's wonder. We only see a blurred image of his majesty, his perfection, his holiness. But although we only see in part That does not change the reality of who God is. It doesn't change the reality of his character or his attributes or his actions. It's not what we think or understand about God which determines that. So what is the reality of God's character? One preacher put it like this. He said, the problem is that God is good. And when asked why that was a problem, his answer was, the problem is that we are not. God is eternal. He's unchangeable. He's infinite in his power He's infinite in his holiness. He's infinite in his goodness. His infinite in his truth. But we are not. You and I are anything but that. And we tend, as a result, to have a distorted perspective on sin. Perhaps we're tempted to diminish petty sins. But our smallest transgression... Of God's law is an immense offense to the infinite righteousness of God. Now I know that some of you in the 20s and 30s, uh, were watching a program called American Gospel, uh, the other week. And there's a very good example of this in that program, and if you saw it the other week, then I apologize for repeating it, and if you haven't quite got to that bit, I apologize for giving you a spoiler. But someone on that program gave this illustration. He said, if you go into a scrapyard and take out your key and scratch the side of a car which is there without any wheels and is just in a heap, someone might say, well, what are you up to? But no one will think much of it. But if you go to a garage where there are lots of second-hand cars and you scrape that same key down those cars which are there to be sold, then you will get into trouble. And I would take that further because not far from us is a garage, a showroom, which sells the most amazing sports cars. There's not a Range Rover in sight. These are things which have names like Maserati and Lamborghini on them. And the price tickets are unbelievable. Now, if I went with that same key and I scratched those cars with that same key, my offence would be immense. My friends, that is a picture or an illustration to help us understand that whatever our sin, it is such an offence to God that the wrath of God must be poured out against it. When God met with Abraham 400 years earlier in Genesis 15, he said that the Israelites would not return to the promised land because... Because the sin or iniquity of the Amorites was not yet complete. But now the sin of the Amorites is complete and God's wrath is quite justly to be poured out on them just as it will be poured out upon the sin and in response to the sin of every one of us. So though we may struggle with the concept of God's wrath at times, remember that God is infinite and perfect in his justice. And so be assured that no man will ever shake their fist back at God and say that his verdict is wrong or the punishment did not fit the crime. And Rahab understood this. She realized that she was a sinner. She was a Canaanite. She recognized that she deserved death, just as the king's og and Sihon had been utterly destroyed. But she had faith. She confessed that sin. She pleaded to be saved. And she trusted that the God of whom she had heard was not only a God of justice, but also a god of mercy and we see this through rahab's actions in hebrews 11 you may remember we have this gallery of faithful people saints of old and there we read in hebrews 11 by faith abraham ab- obeyed by faith moses refused to be called the son of pharaoh's daughter by faith david etc 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 And in Hebrews 11.31 we read, By faith Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those others who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. The writer to the Hebrews affirms that Rahab has saving faith. And the writer does so because he observes that Rahab welcomed the spies. Were these just two strangers who'd arrived at Rahab's house in the evening? Did she unwittingly take these two spies under her roof? If you look again at the narrative in verses 1 and 2, it's very illuminating. Joshua may have sent them out to spy the land, But it doesn't seem as if their cover was very good, does it? Because enough people knew in that town about them that the news reached the king. And their location wasn't very secret either because the king knew where to find them. So we see that Rahab's faith was real because she turned her back on the Canaanite people. We know it's real because she rejected the loyalty to her earthly king. She didn't trust in the fortified walls of Jericho or its gates. No matter that she was alone as a believer in that city, no matter that being found out would mean certain death, she had no idea how God would save her, but she forsook it all and committed herself to God's mercy, welcoming the spies into her home. What can we learn from this? Well, there's a challenge here this morning, isn't there, to those either here or watching on the live stream who've not yet trusted in Christ. Rahab came to faith through what she had heard, but she only had verbal accounts of what and hearsay about what had happened. But she was still convicted of her sin and came to a living faith. How much more for us today? We've got the historical accounts of the life and death of the Lord Jesus. In the scriptures we have a clear testimony of who he is. And, your, and brothers and sisters here in church will speak of their own experience of the Saviour. People who've trusted like Rahab years before in their Lord and found salvation. How much more should we believe? given that all that has been revealed to us in comparison to what Rahab had heard. Well, a little bit more briefly now, we go on. We've looked at Rahab's faith. Now we look at Rahab's choice, and we see that in verses 3 to 5. When we read these verses, um, it describes how the, uh, the king's men come to the door Uh, and ask after the spies to Rahab. We can't avoid the elephant in the room, can we? Uh, Rahab told a lie to protect the spies from almost certain death. But elsewhere, the scriptures indicate that speaking a lie is wrong. Uh, In Colossians 3.9, Paul commands, Do not lie to one another, since you've put off the old man with his deeds. In the very last book of the Bible, in Revelation 22, we're given a glimpse of heaven in all its eternal perfection, centered around the holy presence of God. But in that chapter, there's also a warning, because in verse 15 it says, Outside are the dogs and sorcerers, and the sexually immoral, and murderers and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. There is then, it seems, no place in heaven for those who lie. Well, these verses recounting Rahab's deception aren't easy. And we have to acknowledge right at the outset that Christian opinion has been divided about them. There are some who say intuitively that preserving life must trump telling the lie or the deception. They say that this uh, is a form of self-defence and they can point to practical situations such as during the Second World War when the Gestapo came knocking on the doors of homes where uh, people were hiding Jews. Surely the Christians who were hiding Jews then would have had blood on their hands if they'd revealed their hiding places. In addition, the Ninth Commandment says you shall not give false witness against your neighbour. has a particularly judicial aspect to it, and John Flavel observes that it forbids false swearing, whereby the estates and lives of the innocent are ruined or injured. Some would argue that Rahab's lie didn't injure, injure the innocent at all, but protected them they'd say that her deception then wasn't a breach of the commandment and therefore not a sin. Others take a different view, however. John Murray, for example, insists that in following God's commands, there should never be a conflict and a third way should always be available. One suggestion is that Rahab could simply have refused to have answered the men on her doorstep and trusted that God would providentially Send the king's men away. And by way of illustration, one uh, our congregation does know someone who regularly visits Muslim countries, who can recount the most remarkable stories of how God has providentially intervened to protect His Church in the face of st- such hostile situations. John Calvin likewise took the view that whilst Rahab's intentions were pure, her faith was weak. And Calvin believed that she succumbed to sin in carrying out her deception. Now for myself, I think it's notable that the scriptures neither specifically command nor condemn Rahab's lie. They're silent on the matter both in hebrews 11:31 which we've already looked at and the verses in james which you've got on your service sheet they make no reference to her deception and indeed the passage in james specifically says that it's through her works that she was justified not by her words and i suspect there's a lot of wisdom in this There are clear scriptural references to tell us that it's wrong to lie, and there are clear scriptural references that tell us it's wrong to kill. If the Bible were to forensically dissect Rahab's deception, I suspect we might waste hours working out how far we can push a boundary. And there would be a great temptation to look for excuses all kinds of sin. Truth is that Rahab had to respond as she did in the heat of the moment. She didn't have the opportunity to carefully weigh the arguments or debate with a friend while the king's men stood waiting on the doorstep. She had to react in the moment. And in truth, we were placed in a similar situation If God left us to our own devices, we would probably acquit ourselves no better than Rahab and probably worse. Without God's grace in our lives restraining us from sin, we would quickly descend into the vilest of transgressions. The Puritan Thomas Manton summed it up well when he said of Rahab, Her lie was an infirmity, pardoned by God, and not to be exaggerated by men. In other words, he didn't condone Rahab's deception, but equally he was not unduly censorious either. So what can we learn from that? Whatever you make of Rahab's deception, whether you think it was right or wrong, go looking for excuses to sin. Rahab's situation was quite exceptional and this is not our everyday experience. So follow the clear commands of God and flee temptation. Secondly, give thanks to God that we generally don't have to face the sort of dilemma that faced Rahab but pray for those who are persecuted, that they won't be faced with such difficult or near impossible decisions to make. Remember our oppressed brothers and sisters in Christ, people meeting in the Middle East, in Iran, possibly China. But friends, we shouldn't become obsessed by the question of Rahab's deception because it is a distraction bigger choice that Rahab made and this is one which the scriptures are clear about in their verdict and the verdict is given in the verses in James which I refer to you on your service sheet chapter 2 verses 24 to 26 you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messages and sent them out the way? Because the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Rahab was faced with a choice. Her, face, her choice was, was she going to live out her new faith Or was she going to conform to the wicked Canaanite world around her? Following the Lord Jesus will bring us into conflict of the world and following the Lord was going to bring Rahab into conflict with the world in which she lived. If she was one of God's people, then she had to conduct her life in a way which reflected this. Was she ready to forsake her countrymen in Jericho for the greater joy of being joined with the people of God? And we find here that Rahab had a heart for God's people as well as for the God of Israel. Rahab was faced with a choice. It was one thing to welcome the spies into her home. But when the chips were down, was she going to serve the Canaanite king? Or was she going to serve the Lord? With the king's men standing on her doorstep, was she prepared to commit treason and place her own life on the line? And the genuineness of Rahab's faith is demonstrable and is recorded for posterity and for our instruction. For we're told here that Rahab hid the spies and helped them escape, no matter what potential cost My friends, we all have to make choices every day. Some are big and some are small. Sometimes if we're going to follow Jesus, we have to make difficult choices. Sometimes those choices are painful and we may even struggle for weeks and months at times with them. Sometimes there are choices which mean forsaking people or places which have become very dear to us over many years. Sometimes we have to make a choice. It may even seem like treason. But Rahab shows us that when this happens, the real choice is whether or not we're going to follow the Lord. James tells us that faith, which does not show itself in our choices... Is not faith at all. Faith which does not show itself in our choices is dead. But Rahab's faith was real. We know that because of the choice that she made. Well, that was, we've looked at Rahab's faith, we've looked at Rahab's choice, and so briefly now we'll look at Rahab's hope And we see that in verses 18 and 19 of chapter 2. This is the promise given by the spies. Now some of you know that um, a few weeks ago was my 60th birthday. And uh, on the day, one of my children asked me, how does it feel to be 60? And uh, I gave the obvious answer. Well, it's not very different from being 59. But then I went on and I said, I guess it is different. Because I now feel I'm nearer the end than the beginning. In some ways, I think Rahab was in a similar position to me on my birthday. She was conscious that the end was growing closer. She was conscious that the day of judgment was approaching. She realized that Jericho was facing destruction. She recognized that she was a sinner And that she faced the same peril as her countrymen. But she had faith. She confessed that sin. She pleaded to be saved, trusting that the God of whom she had heard was also a God of mercy. And having pleaded for that mercy from the spies, she found that prayer answered through a promise made to her by the spies. And we read that in verses 18 and 19. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window, through which you shall let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and your mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. See, the spies gave Rahab hope. It wasn't a vague hope that everything would turn out all right on the night, that hopefully she would survive the destruction of Jericho. It was a sure hope, a hope based on a solemn undertaking that had been made. Now God knows whose are his, and he will not allow any to perish. Here the Lord provides a place of safety for Rahab, a place of refuge, a place of security in the face of this impending judgment and destruction. Rahab and her family deserved to die. But the Lord heard her prayer and provided a place of safety. Well, doesn't that point us to the refuge from God's wrath, which the Lord provides for those who call on him today? For all of us, there will come a day of reckoning, because like Rahab, we will deserve the full force of God's wrath for our sin. But the Lord has provided a place of refuge. Not a house marked by a scarlet cord, but a sanctuary marked with the blood of his only son, the Lord Jesus. My friends, there is a time when we will all have to pass through death and face the judgment of God. But if we are trusting in the Lord Jesus, then like Rahab, our place of refuge will keep us safe through that time. If verse 18 gives Rahab hope, then verse 19 also contains a a warning. Rahab and her family would only be safe if they stayed in her home. They were only secure if they remained in the refuge marked with the scarlet cord. God had provided the means of escape, but if they left it, then their blood would be on their own head. And so it will be for us. If we neglect the place of refuge provided to us by God, if we neglect the refuge found in the Lord Jesus, then we do so at our peril. The writer of the Hebrews who said, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? But Rahab didn't leave the house, did she? She continued to trust in the promise that she had received. And in Hebrews 11 chapter 30, uh, chapter 11 verse 31, we are told that by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient. We'll look at Joshua chapter 6 another time, but without spoiling the story too much, we read there that Joshua saved Rahab alive. Joshua, the type of Christ, saved Rahab In the face of the Lord's judgment on Jericho. My friends, surely the application speaks for itself. Rahab's hope lay in trusting the promise of God. And in that hope, she was not disappointed. For Joshua saved her. Our hope is in the antitype of Joshua. Even Jesus himself. And if we trust in him, we're disappointed because he is faithful. Every good story has an epilogue. And there's an epilogue to the story of Rahab. Because Rahab is mentioned three times in the New Testament. We've already referred to Hebrews 11 and James 2 this morning. But there is a third place where Rahab is mentioned. For when you start to read your New Testament, you only have to go five verses into the book of Matthew before we meet Rahab again. She's just mentioned briefly. We're told in that genealogy of David and of Christ, that Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. So you see, Rahab wasn't just saved from Jericho. She was taken in to the people of God. And indeed she appears in that line, in that genealogy which runs through to David And his kingly line. So you see that when Joshua sent the spies into the land. It wasn't really an intelligence mission. In God's providence. They came to Rahab's house. In God's providence. They then gave Rahab a promise. They gave her a hope. Which would preserve her through judgment. Rahab the sinner from Canaan. She was saved by Joshua, but not just saved. In God's providence, she was brought into the very heart of God's people. What greater encouragement then can we have to trust in Christ this morning? What greater encouragement than the story of An example of Rahab. This is the example of Rahab, the sinful Canaanite. Rahab whose heart melted when she considered the God whom she would have to face. This is the example of Rahab who put her faith in God. Rahab who chose to serve him, whatever the cost. And this is the example of Rahab who was given a sure hope until God himself brought her home. Let's pray together. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we thank you that the gospel is to be seen in your dealings with men and women down through the ages. We thank you, Lord, that you save unto the uttermost. We thank you that you took Rahab the prostitute, living amongst the people of sin, and you brought her and saved her and placed her amongst your people. And how, Lord, we pray that that would be the experience of us all, that we rejoice in our Jesus who saves us and cures us for all eternity. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.